You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. We're going to cover a lot of scripture, so it's important you have a Bible. And go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis 33. If you're new to the Bible, no problem. Genesis is at the very beginning. It's the first book, and it's divided by chapters and numbers. And we're going to be in Genesis 33. And just a brief recap to catch you up. If you don't know the story of where we are, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And we are looking at the life of a man named Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. And Jacob is a schemer to the nth degree. He's a deceiver. Uh, Yes, he is saved. Yes, he believes in God. But he is far less concerned about relationships and way more concerned about what? (laughs) Himself, business, making money. His own lifestyle. He's all about Jacob. And we see that Jacob has been scheming his whole life and yet still kind of winning in life, getting the things that he wants. But what he doesn't realize is as he's getting the things that he wants, he's constantly breaking relationships. He doesn't really have healthy relationships, even within his own family. And we're going to see that that kind of comes to a head this morning. And as we get into Genesis chapter 33, here's the scene. Jacob has literally just had a wrestling match with who? With God. God comes down in bodily form, wrestles with Jacob. And we know Jacob's been wrestling with God his whole life. But this is an actual physical match. And God dislocates his hip, and then gives Jacob a new name. And you're like, wow, that's weird if you've never been to church before. Um, That's part of our membership process, actually. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. Um, Jacob's always done things in his own strength. And so God takes his strength so that for the rest of his life, he walks with a limp. And that limp will remind him of the dependence that he needs to have on God instead of himself. But not only does God do that, but he changes his name from Jacob, which literally means heel grabber or deceiver, and changes his name to Israel, which means governed by God. Governed by God. Now, Jacob's name is changing, but that doesn't mean his character develops overnight. It doesn't mean he completely changes in a moment. We will see throughout these two chapters, character takes time to build. God builds his men and women one day at a time. And Jacob is on his way back to the promised land. And he gets word that his brother Esau, who he cheated 20 years ago, really badly, is on his way with 400 armed men. So we're going to pick it up from there. Are you guys ready? That was okay. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Everybody in Genesis 33? Okay. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked. And there Esau was coming and with him 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. 
Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So here's the scene. Jacob's got this huge family. He's incredibly wealthy. And to try and appease his brother, who's been deeply offended for 20 years, as a matter of fact, has plotted in his own heart and mind to murder Jacob when he sees him next, Esau is on his way with 400 armed men. And to try to appease his brother, Jacob sends donkeys and camels and oxen and goats and rams ahead of his family to try to appease Esau as he comes so that every time Esau gets a little closer, there's another herd. And when Esau goes, hey, what are all these animals for? The person goes, oh, these are a gift from your brother Jacob, my Lord. Would you receive it with the hope to appease his brother? And something egregious happens. Uh, Number one, we know that Jacob has two wives. He's got Rachel and Leah. Not okay to have two wives, by the way, but the Bible just says it like it is. He's got two wives. In addition to those two wives, he's also got two concubines. Not okay either, but that's the reality of where Jacob is. And between those four women, he has 11 children right now. And he does something terrible. He puts them in order of importance. Could you imagine? Or maybe some of you can. Maybe you were camping one time and there was like this cougar on the trail and your dad's like, you stand here. We're going to put your sister here. And your mom and I are going that way, right? Um, He literally takes his family, and by how much he loves them or thinks they are important, he puts them on the front lines, the maidservants and their children first, followed by Leah and her kids next. And then he puts Rachel in the back with Joseph. What a painful thing for his family. What a sad experience for them. And this is going to come back and haunt him later. But at least Jacob goes out before them. He doesn't hide behind Rachel and Joseph. He goes ahead of all his wives and kids. And it says that as he's on his way to Esau, what's he do? He bows down seven times. Now, this was like a Middle Eastern way of just showing yourself humble and that you came in peace and that you wanted to honor the Lord of the land. And Jacob is terrified of his brother Esau. And with 400 men, Esau would wipe them out easily. Uh, There's no way of Jacob defending his family. He is now at God's mercy. And I want to encourage us. We're about to see Esau's response. And there's only one way that Esau could have the response that he does. Look at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept with one another. Uh, We get this imagery of Luke 15, chapter 20. How many of you have ever read the parable of the lost son? The kid who asks for his inheritance early while his dad's still alive, goes and squanders it, blows it on all kinds of worldly wicked things, realizes, oh, I've made a huge mistake, but I'm not worthy to go back as a son. I'm just going to go ask if I can be a slave in his household, and while he's still a long way off, what happens? Oh, his father runs to him with open arms. And it's the exact same language with compassion. He falls upon his son and embraces him, kisses his neck, which is a sign of 
intimate love, right? Between a father and a son, in this case, between two brothers. And they weep together, recognizing what they've been missing in Jacob and Esau's case for over 20 years. Now, these are not teenage boys, right? These are grown men, uh, most likely somewhere between 70 and 90 years old. Um, Isaac lived to be 180, so that gives you a little bit of the timeline. Um, but these are grown men with lots of experience in their lives. And Esau comes with a soft heart. Who did that? Who gave him a soft heart? How is that possible? Who did it? It had to be the Lord. And here's what I would propose. We don't know what happened with Esau, but there's only one reason he brings 400 men with him, and it's to slay Jacob. He's going to get back at him. He's been breathing murderous threats in his heart since the day Jacob stole his birthright and the blessing that was owed to him as the firstborn. And yet God does something along the way to Esau that changes his heart. And I would propose to you, we see this with Laban, don't we? Laban is coming after Jacob. He has intention to do him harm. And yet, on the way, God comes to Laban and says, don't you touch Jacob. I know he's a deceiver. I know he's a trickster. I know you got messed over, dude, but he's my guy. And I'm faithful to my promises. Don't touch him. And Esau must experience something similar. But as far as we can see on Esau's end, there is complete reconciliation. He embraces Jacob like a brother. He lets bygones be bygones. And he holds him close. What an incredible start to this chapter. Verse 5. And he lifted his eyes, meaning Esau lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, meaning Jacob, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? In other words, all the animals that you brought, the way that you've organized your family, why, why did you do this? And Jacob says, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said to Jacob, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So Jacob urged Esau, and Esau took it. A great start to this chapter, right? 20 years of hatred, 20 years of no communication, 20 years of separation from these brothers. And the first time they see each other, things go really well. And it's interesting when we begin to consider God does something in Esau's heart to make him embrace Jacob. The question is, is Jacob embracing Esau in the same way? And here's what I would propose to you. Both brothers are willing to keep the peace. But there's one brother who should take it a step further. And he should make peace. And there's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking, isn't there? 
How many of you know there's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking? Uh, peacekeeping versus peacemaking. Peacekeeping is this. I will do anything possible to avoid what? Conflict. Which means if I have to compromise in certain ways or if I just have to give in or hey, maybe I can just take this person out to a nice dinner, not really talk about the underlying issues, but a good steak will win them over. Or maybe you can buy them off. Um, Jacob is trying to keep the peace and we see that with all the animals that he gives to Esau. Hey, I know I did wrong. I messed up. I'm sure you're still mad. Take this gift. Let's just be done with it. No problem. And I want to encourage you. Um, what Jacob's doing, it's not bad. It's not bad. But it's not the greatest plan that God has for his life. And I want to speak the same to us this morning. Peacekeeping in itself isn't bad. But it's not the abundance of life that God calls us to in which happens with peacemaking. And here's what I mean. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus is teaching his famous Sermon on the Mount. And he specifically says, blessed are the peace, what? The peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Well, what does Jesus mean here when he says peacemaker? Well, think of Jesus himself. To keep peace with God might look like this, if this was the way God worked, which he, he doesn't work this way, but like, hey, uh, so I know God, I've messed up again and again, and like 47 million other times yesterday. So good news, I put some money in the basket this week, and we're good, right? <laughs> that would be an attempt at peacekeeping. God is not about peacekeeping. He is about peacemaking. And here's what that looks like for us. We were in sin, and our sin separates us from God. Not only separates us relationally, it actually makes us his enemies. We were at war with him. We were in rebellion with him. We were following the inclinations and the passions of our flesh. Not God's desire, says Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But verse 4 says, but God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us by grace you have been saved, which simply means this. God didn't want to keep peace. He wanted to make peace. And the way he made peace was by doing what? He sent his son because someone had to pay the penalty for sin because somebody or something needed to be the ultimate sacrifice to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. And God sends his son to be a peacemaker. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be what? Called the sons of God. In your own life, here's what I know in my own life. Um, it's just more comfortable to be a peacekeeper, isn't it? It's really awkward to bring up hard things. When you've sinned, when you've messed up with somebody, and you have to go, hey, um, so... Well, here, I'll just give you an example. This week, we did some long teaching with our young adults. And somebody said something, maybe out of turn, and I had a pretty sharp comeback for that individual. And it wasn't okay. I wronged them. I spoke harshly. And afterwards, 
when I got home and I was like, oh man, that was, that was not okay of me. I should have handled that better. I should have been more thoughtful. I should have been more patient. I shouldn't have just spoken what came to my mind. And I had a choice at that moment. I can just be extra nice to that person the next time I see them, or I can do what? I can bring it up and apologize. And here's what we see. That is God's greatest will for Jacob. Even though peacekeeping wasn't bad, it's not the fullness of what God had planned for Jacob and Esau. If Jacob valued the relationship, if that was more important to him than comfort, more important than just a business transaction of cool, he took my stuff, we're good. If the relationship mattered to him, he would have been a peacemaker. And here's what we know. Appeasing will calm the storm, but a wholehearted apology can restore relationships. Appeasing will calm the storm, but a wholehearted apology will restore relationships. Now, keep in mind, I'm thinking about this and I'm studying this passage at the same time. And God's like, so what are you going to do? I'm like, ah. So I called this person and said, hey, listen, I was wrong. I said this. That was not acceptable. It's my fault. Regardless of what you said, will you please forgive me? I'm sorry. And by God's grace, that person forgave me and showed up here on Sunday morning. And I want to encourage you. I know, I understand, I get that peacemaking is difficult. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. But how much do you value the relationship? First and foremost, how much do we value that relationship with God? So that when we sin against him, is it just that we got caught? Or is it the moment we sin, we go, oh, Lord, I know you saw that. I know you heard that. I know you knew that I thought that. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Because it's not just a matter of mere forgiveness transactionally. It's a matter of what between me and God? It's my relationship with him. And it's no different with people. If we won't address the hard things, then there's not an opportunity for that relationship to be restored at the level God wants to restore it. Now, I also understand when it comes to reconciliation, it requires two people. We can attempt to reconcile with somebody and they may not reciprocate. But here is what I know. If that is our heart and that is what we aim for and that's what we try to accomplish and we don't get reconciliation, does God hold that against us? Of course not. And if it's genuine, it's now on the table so that maybe it didn't happen right then. But I want to encourage us. We live in a society where we're just used to getting things right away. Sometimes reconciliation takes what? It takes time. Because there are some deep wounds that people suffer at our hands or that we suffer at the hands of others. And sometimes it may take time. And it's not an ultimatum. Hey, you either receive my forgiveness now or never. Of course not. Hey, I'm sorry. I know it may take you some time, but I just want you to know. I would love to restore relationship. I'm willing to talk about this. I'm willing to hear how deeply you were hurt. This is what God had for Jacob. Now, Jacob, 
misses the greater opportunity here. Uh, not necessarily because he's doing something wrong, but he just misses the greater opportunity. And I want to encourage you, don't let these opportunities slip by because here's usually how it goes. Hey, uh, so you, you, you want to get together next week? Yeah, yeah, great. That sounds good. Okay, what day? Oh, no, you pick the place. No, you pick the time. Okay, perfect. All right, thanks so much. All right, bye-bye. And that's the end of it. Don't miss the greater opportunity because here's what God does in his redemption. Have you ever noticed this? Even when you sin against someone or someone sins against you, if there can be honest conversation about what happened, what, what occurs in the relationship usually? It strengthens it. It grows deeper. More trust happens. It's just the way that God's kingdom works. It's incredible. And again, I know that not every circumstance will end that way. But don't miss the opportunity to reconcile with others. When I consider Jacob, we may look at his life and go, yeah, but Jacob was a deceiver and he was a trickster and he was always cheating people. Like, did he even have the capacity to reconcile? And I would say, yes, 100% he does because he's just finished a wrestling match with who? With God. And God has pursued him. And God has been patient with him. And Jacob has a story to tell Esau. I'm sure in their little bit of hanging out, it's not in the scripture, but Esau would have noticed what about Jacob? Dude, why are you limping so bad, old man? And it would have been Jacob's opportunity to go, hey, not only has God blessed me with this family, but let me share with you what he's doing in my life. Esau, I've been a schemer. I've been cheating people my entire existence. You know it better than anybody else. And yet here's what God's been doing in my life. I'm not there yet, but this is what he's building in me. I want to build that with you, brother. I want to be reconciled to you. We may not live together. We may not live in the same place, but dude, I want to make sure that I ask for forgiveness and that I receive your forgiveness so that we know that we can move forward in our relationship as a testimony of who our God is. That's what God wants to do. Not only in Jacob, but in us. And you are equipped for the ministry of reconciliation. You are equipped for the ministry of reconciliation. How do I know that you're equipped? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are under his lordship, if he's your boss, here's what I know. You have a story of where you used to be how God got a hold of you, how you bent your knee, confessed your sins, and with your heart and mouth confessed that he was Lord, and now he's building you. What is that story called, by the way? It's a testimony. It's a testimony of what? Of reconciliation. This is what God did for me. This is how I've been brought back to my heavenly father. I was living this way. And now... He's given me his son so that I can live this way. Still struggling, still wrestling, still sinning, but repenting now. Each of us have a ministry of reconciliation. So that even when we wrong somebody, wronging someone is a great opportunity to share what? Oh, the message of reconciliation. Because when you live it out, it speaks a lot louder than when you just talk about it. And there's no 
greater humility than when you have to come to somebody and go, I sinned against you. It's my fault. I take ownership. And that person goes, well, it's okay. Or, hey, that's not okay. We got to talk more about this. And the beauty of that reconciliation is it points people right to Jesus Christ. You have a ministry of reconciliation. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 on your screens. We're going to read through this quickly, but I want you thinking about the words as you read. One loud thundering voice, second service. Here we go. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Keep going. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Pause there for just a second. Because we've been redeemed through Christ, he's given us what? The word of reconciliation. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a ministry leader. But I know this. If you're saved by Jesus Christ, you've been given what? The word of reconciliation. Because it's real for you. Now you get to share it with others. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God as ambassadors, as representatives of Jesus. The same message that we received when someone or God himself spoke to us and say, hey, I want to be back in relationship with you. We're separated because of sin. That same message that we received, we are now to be ambassadors for going to our neighbors, going to our family, going to our children and say, please be reconciled to God. He sent his son just for you so that no matter where you've been and what you've done, you can be back in relationship with him. When you bend your knee to Jesus Christ, he receives you with compassion, embraces you with open arms. Spiritually, he kisses you and weeps with you in rejoicing. Last part of the verse. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You are equipped for the ministry of reconciliation. Amen? Verse 12. Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. In other words, Jacob, it's good to have you back. Come home with me. Let's hang out. Let's live together for a while. Let's let our families get to know each other. Verse 13, but Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds, which are nursing with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Probably a little dramatic, but he's making a good excuse. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace, which the livestock that can go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and Seir. And Esau said, well, let me leave with you some of the people or some of the armed men who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? 
Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. In other words, no need to leave people with me. We're perfectly adequate on our own, and I don't want the accountability, so take your men with you. Verse 16, so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed, and it could say in the opposite direction, to Succoth, built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which simply just means booths. Um, Interesting, isn't it? Esau fully embraces Jacob. Dude, come on, let's, let's spend some time together. Jacob's like, you got it. I'll meet you at In-N-Out in 20 minutes. And he heads the other direction to Rubio's and never goes to In-N-Out. What is Jacob doing again? Ah, oh, anybody tired of their old life still hanging on? Wondering why do I do the things that I don't want to do? There's Jacob deceiving and scheming again. He could have just been honest with Esau and said, hey, Esau, honestly, I don't feel comfortable going home with you. I'm still concerned about our relationship, which if we're following the cycle would have given them the opportunity to do what? Oh, to reconcile. Or maybe it was that Jacob knew that God had called him to go to a place called Bethel in the land of Canaan. And it would have been perfectly suitable for Jacob to be honest with Esau and say, hey, Esau, God has called me to go back to this specific place. It's where I took a vow. God has fulfilled that vow. I need to go back there right away. And at least he wouldn't have been deceiving or tricking his brother. But here's what we know. Salvation happens in a moment. But Christ-like character is built over time. Salvation happens in a moment. Meaning... The moment we say, Jesus, you are the Lord and Savior of my life. I'm a sinner and I need salvation. And the only way it can come is from you. You lived, you died, you rose again. I'm all in. I don't even know what that fully means, but I'm all in. I want to follow you. Salvation happens in a moment. You cannot lose your salvation. But godly character, Christ-like character doesn't happen overnight. It's built over time. There's no cheat codes. There's no fast track. There's no classes you can just take. And all of a sudden, yep, I completed class 101. I am a godly husband. So many comments to make at this point. Just leave it alone. Godly character comes from being in the fires and trials of life. Of abiding in God's word on a daily basis. And putting it into practice. Spending time in prayer. And deepening your relationship and communication with God. Thinking more highly of others than of yourself. Which causes you to serve others instead of yourself. And over time, when you put God's word into practice in your life, you will see Christ-like character growing in leaps and bounds. And we simply just see here, Jacob may have had a name change. But he still has a long way to go in his character. Does it remind you of anybody? Reminds me of myself. I can look back. God has grown me significantly. And I know that there's a lot of room for him to continue to grow me. And I love that God uses messy people. This would be a whole different story if Jacob did everything perfectly. But he's like the opposite. And I hope that encourages you. Not as an excuse to keep sinning. But as an understanding of God is just faithful to his word. 
He made a promise to Abraham, inherited by Isaac, now inherited by Jacob. And God goes, I'm going to be faithful to that promise. You're making it harder on yourself, Jacob, but I'm going to grow you to become a man of character after me so that you can steward the blessings that I give to you well. Verse 18, then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar and there called the altar El Elohe Israel, which simply just means God, the God of Israel. Some interesting things that are just so quickly glossed over, which really matter in the context of what we're talking about. We're going to do a little bit of a Bible page turning. Are you ready? Okay, five of you are ready. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. I want you to go to verse 20. Genesis 28, verse 20. When Jacob is fleeing his own homeland because Esau wants to murder him and he's headed to his uncle Laban's, he stops in a place which he then names Bethel. Bethel, by the way, just means God's house. And do you remember the vision that Jacob had there? What did he see? He saw this ladder reaching from earth to heaven. And what was ascending and descending on the ladder? Angels. And he wakes up from this vision and goes, surely God is in this place. This is a special place. I'm going to call it God's house. And then look at with me, Genesis 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow or a promise saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that, you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Was God faithful to this vow that Jacob makes for himself? Did God bring him back in peace? You bet he did. Therefore, where should Jacob be getting to as quickly as possible? He should get to Bethel because that's where he made this vow. That's where God met him along the journey. And 20 years later, God has fulfilled the promise and Jacob should go to Bethel to worship the Lord. Now go to Genesis chapter 31, verse 3. Jacob is now with Laban. There's been all kinds of problems. They're scheming and cheating each other. They're wondering whose flocks are whose, who's getting more money. And here's what God says to Jacob. 31 verse 3, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family and I will be with you. Now jump down to verse 13, same chapter. God says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, meaning where Uncle Laban is, and return to the land of your family. Where should Jacob be going? He should be going to Bethel. Here's what's crazy. You know how far away Bethel is from Shechem? A day's journey. And where does Jacob settle? In Shechem. He's there for years. And he stops short of full obedience to God. Here's why this matters. 
Delayed obedience puts you and your family at risk. And we're going to see in chapter 34, which we're going to dive into in just a moment, Jacob's family is terrorized because he doesn't get to Bethel. He stops just short. And I don't know if it was because Shechem had a better trade route, if it was because it was a more established and wealthier city. I don't know if it's because Jacob liked the inhabitants there and knew he could trade with them and do well. I don't know. But he stops short. And I want to encourage us. Take notice of what God speaks to your hearts. I know in my life, there are seasons where I'm like, Lord, I need to be reading your word more. You don't have to raise your hand, but anybody known that in their own life? When we delay in obeying what God is calling us to do, that not only puts us at risk because we're not growing in our relationship with Christ, but if we've been given others to steward, a wife, a husband, children, grandchildren, it puts them at risk too. Because if I'm not growing in Christ, then I'm not doing what with the people that God has given to me to steward? I'm not growing them either. Delayed obedience puts you and your family at risk. Don't delay. If God's speaking to your heart, saying, hey, it's time to get out of that sin. You got to stop gambling. You got to stop drinking and making excuses that it's just a few beers. You got to stop watching pornography. Hey, you need to stop loading all your emotions into your business and start pouring into your family. Do not delay in obedience to what God speaks to you. It is for your benefit. It is to build you. It is to establish Christ-like character in your life. And even a little bit of delayed obedience can have drastic consequences in our life. Now, there's another part of this. Jacob does stop short of Shechem. But what's he do at Shechem once he gets established? He builds an altar and calls it the God, God of Israel. Uh, Jacob is growing. He's now intentionally trying to worship God. And more so than just focusing on Jacob's attempt at worshiping God, here's where I want to bring your attention. Who has been faithful? Let's try that again. Who has been faithful? God. Now, here's why. That's not a hard answer to come up with, but that's, here's why it's so important. You mean to tell me a schemer like Jacob, who really doesn't give a rip about relationships with other people, including in his own household, who's all about business, who's all about money. You mean God has been faithful to that man? And the answer is, yes, he has. That just amazes me. If you're in here today and you're worried that God is out to get you, that he wants to ruin your life, that he's just waiting for you to make the next mistake, you could not be further from the truth. And that doesn't give us a license to live any way we want. But do you see the character of God? He is faithful. He loves his people. He wants to provide an abundant life and to grow us. But he will pursue us to the end of ourselves, won't he? And if you don't listen to his soft and gentle voice, whispering warnings in your ear, he will then do what? He will speak louder so that you can't miss it. But here is what I would propose to you. If you're in deep relationship with your God, what will you hear? His soft voice. 
If you're not, what won't you hear? His soft voice, because there will be way more noise from your own life drowning him out in which he will speak louder. Now I preface this with what is to come in Genesis 34. This is a difficult chapter, maybe one of the most difficult chapters to teach on in the Bible. In chapter 33, Jacob uses the words with Esau when Esau says, hey, who are all these people? Jacob says, oh, these are my children. This is the family that God has graciously given to me. These are the flocks that God has graciously given to me. He sets up an altar called the God, the God of Israel. And in chapter 34, there's not a single mention of God's name. Never says Jehovah, never says Elohim, never says Yahweh. And it's because God is not in this chapter. What you are going to see that happens is not part of God's character. It's what men do when they choose what is right in their own eyes. And it leads to destruction and pain and sorrow. This is a difficult chapter. And yet, if you are able to pay close attention, it should also bring us much comfort, much understanding of who God is and how much he loves us. Are you ready? (laughs) Okay, that's a fair answer. (laughs) Chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Uh, Dina was probably six years old when she left Uncle Laban's place. Um, At this point, she's a young teen. We don't know exactly how old, but she's in her young teens. And remember, this isn't a day stop in Shechem. They're settling down. They're building roots. And like any young girl, what does she want to go do? Meet friends. I mean, think about this. She has six older brothers. She's the only mentioned daughter of Leah. And whether she rebelliously leaves the house when she's not supposed to, whether it's just out of curiosity, whether it's out of being naive, whether it's out of negligence on Jacob and Leah's part, she goes out unattended into a pagan land with pagan people. Verse 2. And when Shechem the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her. He took her and lay with her and violated her. As a dad to a daughter, it's awful. There's just a lot of injustice and sorrow and grief in the world, isn't there? There just is. And honestly, I really rather not be teaching this chapter today if I got to choose what to teach. But here's what I love about God's word as we go verse by verse. The Bible does not shy away from hard things. And the rape of Dina, is that a real life circumstance? Sadly, it is. And statistically, it's just way more common than we want to think that it is. And it's bad enough in America, it's even worse in other countries. And here's what I love about the Bible. It does not shy away from the hard things. And it also reminds us that we have a God who understands the depths of the injustice, the sorrow, and the grief of our world. 
so much so that he left heaven and came to earth. And what did Jesus experience while he was on earth? Injustice, sorrow, and grief. And we could add all kinds of words to the list, couldn't we? He's not a God who sits up in some heavenly realm going, well, deal with it. Oh, sorry. No, he's a God who left his position and lowered himself to the lowest point and endured obedience to the point of death on the cross. And what this chapter is going to show us is the difference between God's character, even in injustice, versus man's character in seeking vengeance. We just finished a chapter rooted in reconciliation as a whole. And now we're going to look at a chapter rooted in revenge. And only one brings life. The other brings death and destruction. Only one restores relationship. The other, revenge, tears it apart. Verse 3, his soul, meaning this Shechem, was strongly attracted to Dina, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. Do you see the grotesqueness in this passage? The dude rapes her and then speaks kindly to her. That does not compute, nor should it compute. And when it says his soul was attracted to her, what it means is he thought she was smoking hot, so he took what he wanted when he wanted it. This is not sacrificial love. This is not the type of love Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5. This is not Christ's love toward the church. This is man's love seeking his own fleshly gains and pleasures, and it's not okay. It's wicked and sinful to the core. But what do you expect from the world? Do you see why God wants to build Jacob to be Israel? If we go to Exodus chapter 19, if you've been part of the men's ministry, here is God's vision for Israel. You are my special treasure. You are to be a kingdom of priests and you are to be a holy nation set apart for my use. That's God's vision for his people. Why does he want that as a vision for his people? Because the rest of the world looks like the Hamors and the Shechem's. Taking what they want whenever they want. Feeding their flesh. Feeding their greed. God intentionally calls us to be set apart. Because this is darkness. And this is light. And even if you walk in darkness. The light will shine. And God willing. In his mercy. In his will. He is constantly bringing people from the darkness. Into the light. But if the light is acting in darkness, how dark it really is. Now, I want to press pause for just a moment. We know that the world is full of injustice, sorrow, and grief. This egregious thing has happened. How do you think Jacob feels when he hears this? Even if she is Leah's daughter, how do you think he feels as a dad? You think he feels responsible? I bet he does. You think he's hurt and weeping? You think he's kicking himself? How do you think Dina's brothers feel? Leah's sons? How do you think they feel when they find out? They're angry and rightfully so. Injustice has occurred. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says, Be angry, but what? Do not sin. Oh, that is really hard. I'm good at being angry at something, 
but I'm not good about not sinning. The only way not to sin is to leave it in the Lord's hands and in the Lord's ways. And that does not mean inaction, but it does mean that a crime has occurred and there is a punishment to fit that crime, but vengeance and revenge will go above and beyond, won't it? It doesn't just seek to try and bring justice to a situation. Revenge seeks to destroy another person from the inside out and from the outside in. Verse 4, so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this young woman as a wife. You can see the entitlement. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dina, his daughter. Now his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. That does not mean Jacob was indifferent. Doesn't mean he was inactive. It just means without his sons there, he could what? He could do nothing. There was literally nothing he could do about this until his sons got back. Now the sons come back, verse 7, or verse 6. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. We're almost in that same position that Jacob and Esau were, aren't we? There has been a serious wrong committed. The father of the young man who's committed this sin comes out to speak with Jacob. And in our world, we would expect there to be a what? Like three people knew the answer. We would expect Hamor to do what with Jacob? To apologize. Go, hey, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Uh, What can we do? How can we reconcile? But no, this is the world that Jacob's dealing with. Look at verse seven. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry. Because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Absolutely, 100%. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. There is no apology. And do you know why? Because there's no light in those dark parts of the world. What should we expect? They're pagans. They worship sexuality. They worship promiscuity. They worship and sacrifice their own babies. There's no light in the darkness. And Jacob and his sons have the opportunity to do what? To be the light. That does not mean an action toward injustice. But it does mean a punishment that fits the crime. There is an opportunity for them to be the light. And watch what happens. Amor says, verse 8, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father, meaning Jacob, and her brothers, the sons of Leah, Let me find favor in your eyes. Are you kidding me? And whatever you ask, you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. Holy moly. Now at this point, what do you think is happening to the brothers? 
Oh man, I can only imagine they're fuming. Their blood is boiling and rightfully so. Here's what we know. The world is full of injustice, sorrow, and grief. But I also want you to know that Jesus understands every temptation and vengeance belongs to the Lord. There's a great temptation in these young men's hearts and minds. What is that temptation? To seek vengeance, to seek revenge, to get back at Shechem. There's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. One is in the light, one is in the darkness. In our own lives, when we are wronged, I know what it's like to be significantly wronged, wrongfully accused by the law. I know what that's like. But vengeance, where does it lead? Not only does it destroy the lives of others, it destroys your own life because it consumes you. It's all you can think about. And you make up this story in your brain that somehow if I get back at this person, I'll feel better. And if you ever do, it solves nothing. And if you're a Christian, it's even worse because you defame the name of Christ. Could you imagine if God came and sought vengeance on those who sinned? We'd all not be here. All of us. It's a great question when someone goes, well, if God's a good and loving God, why doesn't he just get rid of all the evil in the world? And the reason why is because if he got rid of all the evil, who would be gone? Me and all of us sitting here would be gone. God is not slow about accomplishing his promises, but he is patient to allow people to repent of their sins and come to him so that they can have everlasting life. There is judgment day that is coming and it is coming more near. Be aware. And there is no time to delay in obedience to Christ. But make no mistake, God is patient, even with the worst of people. And if we have been paying attention, Jacob isn't the best of guys, is he? And unfortunately, that has rubbed off on his sons. And they are about to scheme and deceive for the purpose of destruction. One other thing I would say about the enemy here. Notice Shechem and Hamor's proposal. Hey, hey, they don't even address, right? They're just trying to peacekeep. They don't even address what happened with Dina. They just go, how about you give us your daughters? We'll give, us, we'll give you our daughters and we can trade together and we'll get wealthy and we'll all live in a big city and we'll be happily ever after. It's the same stinking plan that the enemy has today. Get wealthy. Live a comfortable life. Just give us what? Give us your children. No way. Way. <laughs> Absolutely not. Now, this is why we do Awana. Because we are helping kids hide God's word in their heart. So that as they face goodness knows what in their lifetime, they have roots in the truth. They have a compass. They have a conviction to go, this isn't right. Even if it's hard, this isn't right. It's why we do men's and women's study. It's why we do mission groups. We get into the word of God because we need it in a world that's constantly trying to assimilate us into its own ways. It's not what God has for us. And neither is vengeance. Verse 13, but the sons of Jacob... 
answered Shechem and Hamor, his father. And they spoke what? Oh, if you're Jacob, are you frustrated? Because your sins have been passed on to the sons. They make their own choices, but they've seen it modeled by dad. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dina, their sister. And they said to the Hivites, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you if you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become what? But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. No. Do you see what they're doing? How are they, how are they deceiving the men in the city of Shechem? What are they saying? If you become like us, what, what is this become like us business? If you become circumcised, if you're new to church for the first time, it's okay. Uh, here's, what, <laughs> here's what circumcision represented in the Old Testament. It was a sign of the covenant with Abraham. It is not the covenant itself. That does not mean anyone who gets circumcised automatically becomes somebody of God's people. Circumcision represented the cutting away of the flesh, dying to self so that you would come under the lordship of God. That was the sign of circumcision. And do you see how Jacob's sons twist it? Hey, hey, to become one of us, all you need to do is all done. And then we can live together in happiness and peace. You know what that is? That's vain religion. And God hates vain religion. He hates vain religion. Vain religion is going to church and not living beyond the Sunday service in the ways of the Lord. Vain religion is every time you see a stained glass window crossing your heart like this. You laugh. I see it all the time from my office window. It's vain religion. It does nothing. Putting money in the box, not cursing, not drinking, it does nothing if it's not part of a relationship with God. If it's in self-righteousness or the goodness of your own works, it falls short. It is nothing. And God hates vain religion because it gives the appearance of relationship. And yet at the root, there is none. And what has Jacob been missing in his life? Relationship. Including with his own sons. Whom he put in a certain order. Who didn't trust their father. To defend their, their sister in the right way. So they take matters into their own hands. And they take matters into their own hands. By the very means that their character currently is in. An ungodly character. A vengeful character. An angry character. And they trick the men of Shechem in the name of God. That's spiritual abuse. That's manipulative. May we not do that as we minister to others. May we not say things like, hey, you better, you better stop smoking or you'll never get to heaven. That's not the gospel. Hey, you're not giving? You better start giving or God's not going to honor you. That's not the gospel. 
Because here's what I know. When God gets to our heart and we begin a relationship with him, do people have to tell you how to live? No, they don't. Just like in my own parenting, I can scare my kids into not doing something again. Or I can get to their heart and help them understand the wisdom of that way so that they follow it on their own whether I'm around or not because they just understand this is better. There's truth in this. There's wisdom in this. Verse 18. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. Why did it please them? Because Shechem just wanted Dina. His flesh was driving him. He was full of lust. He's like, sure, whatever it takes. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. An interesting statement, by the way. Shechem was more honorable than most of the men in his city. And what did he do? He raped a little girl. That tells you what kind of city Shechem was. Terrifying. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Oh, no. They think, Jacob's brothers... It's all good. No problem. Because nothing was brought to the table by Jacob's brothers to say, hey, we have a grievance that needs to be reconciled. This isn't okay. We can't continue. There's going to be, there's going to be bloodshed. Instead of doing that, they deceive these men. It is the opposite of what God does with us. He doesn't hide things from us. He comes right out with it in the gospel and says, you have sin. It needs to be dealt with. I'm dealing with it if you want to receive it. Now be in relationship with me. Reconcile with me. I've made a way. Choose. Verse 21. These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Like, I mean, men... At what point do you stop and you're like, I have a question. <laughs> I'm not on board with this plan or I'd like to know more. But when you're driven by the lust of your flesh, you don't ask questions, do you? You just do. And that's what's going on. Verse 23, will not their livestock, their property and every animal of theirs be ours? They have some greed in this too, by the way. Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain. That's an understatement, by the way. They would not have been able to move, not get up, not walk, not hold a sword, not anything. that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem and his son with the edge of the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and went out. She was under house arrest. It was Shechem. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys and what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth. Also, they all took their little ones, their wives, and they took them captive. 
and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Do you see what happens when man chooses what is right in his own eyes? It was not right what happened to Dina. Justice needed to be served. But the revenge and the retribution that was paid, that's not who God is. That's not what he does. When he gives the law to Moses, he lays out very specific terms for when a sexual sin occurs, for when murder occurs. And he provides that for the purpose of the punishment fitting the crime so that chaos doesn't ensue, so that the light will reign over the darkness. And we see because of the lack of Jacob's integrity and character in raising his sons in the wisdom of God's ways, these men choose an egregious path. And here's what we know. Revenge ruins relationships. Revenge ruins relationships. First and foremost, what does this show about the relationship between God and Jacob or Levi and Simeon? It's non-existent. They're murderers. They're kidnappers. They're pillagers. And I get it. They say, well, because this happened to our sister. Hey, that part is true. But to come up with this on your own only reveals the wickedness of your own hearts, reveals that you don't have an understanding of the grace that God has given to you, the patience he's had with you, the blessing that he's bestowed upon you despite the sinfulness of your father's ways and your ways. It also ruins the relationship between Jacob and Simeon and Levi. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is on his deathbed and he's pronouncing blessings over his sons. But guess who doesn't get a blessing? Simeon and Levi, because they're murderers and there's anger and wickedness in their hearts to a wrong degree. This also ruins a relationship with Dina. What happened to her is terrible and it can't be taken back. But now in Dina's name, what have these men done? Murdered and taken little ones and wives captive and plundered a village. How do you think that impacted her? And what about the relationships within the land of Canaan? How do you think Jacob's family looked after this incident? I'll tell you how it looked. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But the son said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? What is Jacob still worried about? Himself. Instead of going, boys, boys, why did you do this? This is not the way of the Lord. And then Jacob taking ownership and going, I have not taught you appropriately. I have some ownership in this. But guys, this is not okay. This does not glorify Jesus. This is not the way of the Lord. This is not going to be a light to the land. But instead, Jacob, who's not yet spiritually mature and is still growing, is more concerned about his own reputation and things than he is about a right relationship with God. Now, tough chapter to end on. Have a great Sunday, right? <laughs> Here's what I want to encourage you with. As we get into chapter 35, 
It's the loud voice of what is speaking here. And you will see Jacob respond. Not only for him, but for his whole household. And I want to remind us this. Even though Jacob's sons come in and do this egregious thing, it reveals the goodness of God. And I don't mean the action that took place. It's wicked and sinful. Here's what I do mean. Aren't you glad that Jesus isn't that way? We know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What we forget is John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. He sent his son into the world to save the world. This is the message of reconciliation. Justice can be done when injustice occurs. But let us not forget that each one of us has been reconciled to God. Not because we've earned it. Not because we've deserved it. And I look back in my past and I'm embarrassed and ashamed of the egregious things that I've taken part in. I wish they didn't occur, but they did. And I'm really thankful for a God who didn't condemn me, but a God who came to save me. This is his ways. This is his character. And this is what each of us have been offered. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.